Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hi there, I'm Don Bishop, your host tonight for Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. My partner, Roger Maves, is usually here, but he's on vacation. As we speak, Roger is partway through Grand Canyon, rafting the Colorado River. Some nerve that guy's got leaving me behind to do all the work, and let me tell you, that's the last time I tell him to go take a break. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Barry Reynolds, and he'll be answering your most important questions about fishing pike on the fly. We are broadcasting live over the Internet as well as on a teleconference call. The link on our online broadcast is available on the home page of our website, askaboutflyfishing.com. The call-in phone number for our teleconference call is 212-990-8000, and the PIN number is 6913-POUND. This shows 90 minutes in length. During the first hour, we'll be asking Barry Reynolds the questions you've sent in over the Internet in advance of the show, and then in the last 30 minutes, we'll field your questions live over the conference call and via the Internet. If you're listening to our Internet broadcast and want to send in a question for Barry, just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, click on the link below the description of Barry that says, click here to ask Barry Reynolds your most important question. Please list your first name and where you're from if you don't mind. We have listeners in over 100 countries, and there are a lot of pike fishers in Europe. I'm hoping we may hear from some of them. For those of you who are on the conference call, just wait until we open our lines, and then you can ask your question live. That will be during the last half hour of the show. This broadcast is being recorded, and the recording will be available for playback on our website about one hour after this call ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website and listen to the broadcast at your convenience. Of course, you can always replay the recording as often as you like up until our next broadcast. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group Incorporated doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be sold or distributed in any form. When we return, we'll talk with Barry Reynolds about fishing pike on the fly. First, a brief word from our sponsor. This segment of our show tonight is brought to you by Smitty's on Snowbank, a new affiliate. Smitty's on Snowbank is a year-round, full-service resort near Ely, Minnesota. Snowbank Lake borders on the Boundary Waters canoeing area and offers terrific northern pike and smallmouth bass fishing, as well as lake trout. Come enjoy the beautiful north woods and the fine fishing, as well as the friendly staff at Smitty's on Snowbank, where they offer a variety of dining and lodging plans at very reasonable prices. Smitty's on Snowbank. Go to their website, smittysonsnowbank.com, or call 1-800-950-8310. That's smittysonsnowbank.com, or 1-800-950-8310. And tell them you heard it on Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Okay. Before we introduce Barry Reynolds, we'd like to let you know about the great gift we have to give away tonight. Barry's been kind enough to provide an autographed copy of his latest book, Mastering Pike on the Fly. We'll be drawing the name of the winner of this book at the end of the show. Barry's book takes fly fishing for pike to a whole new level. Mastering Pike on the Fly delivers a full complement of information about strategies, 
flies, and equipment needed to locate and catch pike under nearly every circumstance. If you haven't registered for the drawing, you can do so now. Go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and look for the link under Barry's section that says register for the drawing. Click on the link, fill out the registration, and send it in so you're eligible for the drawing at the end of the show. Well, it's a treat to introduce our guest tonight. Barry Reynolds is truly a master of fly fishing. He has over 20 years experience guiding fly fishers to angling destinations all over the globe. He's a certified casting instructor and master fly tire, and he's a pro staff member with Scott Fly Rods, Ross Reels, Rio Fly Lines, and he's also a contract tire with Umpqua Feather Merchants where he designs new and unique patterns for fish that he pursues worldwide. Barry's articles and photography have appeared in numerous publications, and he's co-authored three books, Pike on the Fly, Carp on the Fly, and Beyond Trout. Mastering Pike on the Fly, his solo effort, is his most recent publication. Barry's had many guest appearances on a variety of outdoor television and radio shows, and his first video was The Fly Rodder's Guide to Pike. He has several projects in the works now, and we'll find out about those shortly. Barry's following and popularity with the angling public has led him to the seminar circuit where he makes frequent appearances. We're fortunate that Barry was able to find time in his busy schedule for tonight's uh, discussion. Barry Reynolds, welcome to the show. Thanks, Don. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'll tell you, it's great having you. We've got uh, several questions, of course, from the audience that have been submitted in advance, but I wonder if you could uh, just take a couple minutes and tell us about some of these projects that you've got going on. You're a busy guy. <laughs> We've got uh, actually quite a bit going on right now. We just finished and completed um, a new DVD called The Fly Rider's Guide to Carp, which was shot entirely here in Colorado, and it kind of focuses on fly fishing for carp in both moving water and still water situations and just a lot of fun to do and, and had a tremendous amount of fun chasing those things around on a fly rod and we talk about you know the time of year the fly patterns and whatnot um, and how to pursue carp on a fly and hopefully we'll open up a few more eyes and get a few more people out there chasing them around and then in addition to that we've also um, we're, we just sold a tv show uh, called barry reynolds fly fishing journal and we just actually returned from Guatemala filming our first two segments on fly fishing for sailfish. And we just recently, uh, most recently, finished a show on fly fishing for rainbow trout here in Colorado. I'll tell you, it's nice knowing there's a guy like you who's feeling the responsibility to carry out some of these miserable jobs. <laughs> uh, do you have contact information that people can find out more about these different things? Well, we do, Don, and... What I'll tell the, the listeners is that uh, the website's under construction. They can get on there and, and poke around a little bit, but it's kind of a, a work in prog um, progress as we go along here. But uh, it's uh, BarryReynoldsFlyFishing.com, and as the television series continues on and then as new DVDs uh, come into play, then uh, we'll get it uh, more and more current. But we just have so many different things going on right now, it's hard to keep up with what we're doing and actually get on the website and get that all changed as well. So that's that's kind of taking a backseat to the other projects. And then I also have two new book projects going on at the same time. So Wow. <laughs> that's, a, that's quite a schedule. Tell me, I, I'm, I'm curious, how, how did the guy uh, in Trout World, Colorado, get turned on to Pike? 
Well, fortunately, um, my dad was in the military, so I grew up in the Air Force, and we traveled all over the country as he got um, reassigned to new locations. So I actually grew up in Georgia and Texas and California and Montana and Colorado and, and places like that. So um, I grew up with warm water fly fishing, and I kind of grew into the trout fishing end of it uh, when we moved here to Colorado. And then you, you get to a point where... I like to chase anything around that will eat a fly. I think if they're willing to eat a fly, then they're worth pursuing with a fly. And that's just kind of led me to to these other species and to learn as much about them as I could. In addition to that, I also find that um, the pressure is a lot less on these alternative species, if you will, particularly here in Colorado. I don't know if we could call bass an alternative species in other places, but here in Colorado, it, it, it certainly is on a fly rod. Yeah. And um, I just... When I go out and fly fish and, and fish in general, where I'm throwing a spinning rod or a bait casting rod, I, I enjoy being outdoors and I don't want to be stacked on top of one another. And, and with the, the the fishing pressure that's put, being put on the cold water resources, I just thought it was time to start exploring other avenues. And, you know, that was 20 years ago. Sure. Well, what, uh, what do you find uh, about the pike that uh, justifies the kind of attention you've given them? <clears throat> I like to tell people pike hit flies with bad intentions. <laughs> I don't know any other way to put it. I've I've <clears throat> I've had uh, clients out there where a pike will come up and launch itself at the fly last minute and and just scare the the dickens out of them. And there's very few fish that will attack a fly the way a northern pike will. I believe that. How uh, <laughs> how similar are they to muskies? Uh, Muskies seem to have a little different range and uh, maybe even are tougher to, to come by in terms of uh, fishermen. What, uh, what, what do you think of that? I think they're two entirely different creatures. Uh, they're, they're out of the same family or genius, if you will, but they are two totally different behaving fish. Um, Northern pike, more densely populated lake, um, in, in, so you'll find greater numbers of them. They're also more widespread, so you can find them in a variety of different um, areas throughout the North America, Europe, um, Alaska, Canada, uh, all these places where muskies have a fairly limited range. They've been stocked in other waters, uh, but, um, you know, uh, they're called a fish of a thousand casts for a good reason. And here in Colorado, we have the tiger muskie, which is a sterile hybrid. But we've found that their behavior be, uh, would be more in line with what you would expect to find with northern pike and not true muskie. And I have fished true muskie on uh, numerous occasions in, in a variety of, of lakes up in Minnesota and along the, the boundary waters, and it's just a very, very tough fish. Um, and you don't go out and expect to catch one every time. In addition to that, you don't expect to go out and catch multiple numbers of fish at a time, although we've had a few trips where we've been able to do that. I just don't expect it. <laughs> yeah. Now, we've had an awful lot of questions submitted uh, in advance of the show that relate to the tackle uh, that one would use in pursuing pike, and I wonder if you could uh, uh, give us maybe a brief rundown on that and maybe talk in terms uh, a little bit of the uh, type of presentation and the equipment you use for surface versus uh, shallow and then deeper water situations. Sure. I think the big misconception with uh, picking a fly rod for, for pike is that you need a big rod for pike. You don't need the larger rod, and when I'm talking about larger rod, when we talk about pike and muskie fishing or tiger muskies, we talk about an 8-weight, 9-weight, or 10-weight rod. And I like to split the difference, and I fish a 9-weight primarily for all my pike and 
uh, tiger muskie fishing here in Colorado and when I travel abroad as well. Um, what you do need the rod for is to turn over some of these big flies that we're throwing. And some of these flies are 8, 9, 10 inches long in some cases. And um, here in Colorado in particular, in South Park, the wind blows, uh, you know, 90 miles an hour at a constant rate. Uh, a calm day would be when it's under 40. Mm-hmm. And uh, to be able to punch flies out through that kind of wind and with that size of fly, you really need a good stout rod for that. And that's why I would primarily recommend a 9 or a 10 weight with an 8 weight being on the lightest I would go. Okay. How about the the construction of the line? What uh, what tapers are you looking for with uh, the different presentations? As far as the leaders go, uh, um, the lines, the fly lines. Yeah. When I'm fishing shallow water, and when I talk shallow water with pike, I'm typically talking six feet of water or less. I can usually get away with most of my presentations on just using. Um, a bass bug taper, and now all these uh, line companies also have specialty lines out like a pike or muskie taper. And basically what that is is just an exaggerated weight forward where all the weights pushed forward into that front 22 feet of the line, mm-hmm. which aids in turning over these big flies. Once these fish start to move out in 6, 8, 9, 10 feet of water, I'll switch to a 7-foot sink tip with either a type 3 or a type 6 sink rate, which is 3 inches or 6 inches per second, and then I can go down and fish uh, comfortably, um, like I said, in 6 to 8, 9, 10 feet of water. Uh, in the summer months when it gets really, really hot and these fish are forced out into even deeper water and they might, you might find them submerged uh, at the base of the weed beds or some old timber and stuff, we've, we've actually had to go down and fish them in 15 to 18 feet of water and then you're going to have to use a full sinking line uh, to do that and also a weighted fly. Yes, at times you do. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, why don't you uh, just tell us briefly about hooks, and then we'll take just a real short break. But we've had some questions come in about hooks and barbless and circle hooks and uh, is there such a thing as a barbless circle hook? What is, what's that? that well, I... I've, the only time I've really experimented with these with the circle hooks is when I'm doing some uh, big game saltwater fishing. I have not found it necessary, um, particularly from a fly fishing standpoint, um, to use a circle hook. Uh, most people that are playing with circle hooks are using live bait or dead bait rigs, and what that does is it simply pr- uh, uh, prevents the fish from taking the hook too deep, and it, most times you'll get them hooked in the corner of the mouth. Um, so from a fly fishing perspective, I don't know that um, I know anybody that's using them in that application. As far as barbless goes, absolutely. Uh, every fly I use for northern pike, the barb is pinched down, and that's only because of the fact that um, it's easier for us to get the fly back out and keep our fingers out of harm's way, if you will. Mm-hmm. And, and in addition, uh, northern pike have a nasty habit of when they clamp down on something, not, not wanting to let go. So, um, you know, like I said, barbless hooks are the way to go. It's just so much easier for yourself and the fish. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it makes releasing those big girls a lot easier to do. Yeah, if you stick one in somebody, it's easier to get them out, too. <laughs> yeah, we, we try and avoid that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's take just a real uh, short break here. And, and uh, when we return, we'll be talking more with Barry Reynolds about pike on the fly. So stick around. Here's a brief word from our sponsor. This segment is brought to you by Bear Bay Lodge. Bear Bay Lodge is a premium fly-out fishing lodge located in the Bristol Bay drainage in southwest Alaska. 
rated a top choice by renowned fly fisher Brian O'Keefe, you will find all the amenities and incredible Alaska fishing that your heart desires. Five species of wild salmon, rainbows, northern pike, grayling, char, and more. Call Ty and Travis at 866-232-7229 or go to their website at bearbaylodge.com. That's 866-232-7229 and bearbaylodge.com. You can also find their link on the askaboutflyfishing.com website under Shops and Guides in Alaska. Tell them you heard it here. Okay, Barry. Um, yes, sir. Probably the biggest number of questions that we've had relate to leaders, <laughs> length of leaders, construction, uh, and also what impact the leader has on either the action of the fly or the percentage of hookups. Uh, what's uh, what's your opinion about that? Okay. Well, it's a, it's a very broad subject, so we'll, we'll kind of just... Um Break it down in the sections here, and the first thing is is in the early days, and I'm talking twenty to twenty five years ago when we first started fly fishing for pike, a lot of um the steel leader that was available was the equivalent of of tying your fly to a rope and throwing it out there, and it did kill the action of the fly, and it was just very difficult and cranky to work with. You catch one fish and it'd come back and it just looked like like a slinky basically. So in the early days, we used a hard mono system, which um, we used um, a 25 to 30-pound hard mason, and we would just use a level section of that about six or seven feet long. Um, I know some people asked about turnover from from using these types of setups, and the thing with pike flies is they're big enough and heavy enough on their own, they turn themselves over. You know, the primary reason for a tapered leader is to help in fly turnover. Mm-hmm. And uh, these these leaders are rigid and stiff enough, and the flies are also heavy enough. They kind of work hand in hand, so I don't worry so much about a tapered leader. But um, as as every as fishing progressed and leaders got more developed, and we got into thinner and thinner wires, I switched back from mono and uh, started using these these new uh, braided uh, steel leader systems. Uh, there's some out there that are very good, Tiger Wire, uh, American Wire, uh, Cortland Toothy Critter, and um, Rio's um, Vectran. All those are, are very thin diameter wires. They're 20 to 30 pound tests is typically what I use, and they're all knottable. So you can tie just a, a simple jam knot, which is two overhand knots pulled against one another, leave a nice loop where you attach your fly and get lots and lots of movement from the fly that way. Now, they do still have a tendency to want to coil up after you've caught a fish or two, but the beauty of it is is it just it enhances the action of the fly, and uh, as you strip the fly through the water, that, that uh, wire leader is so light um, that it straightens itself out as you're stripping it through the water. It stays curled up. You know what I mean? As you're stripping it through the water, it kind of straightens out and then kind of springs back, if you will. So it doesn't really hurt the action uh, so much. But as far as the leader setup goes um, that I use today, I'm using six foot of 22 pound hard mono, and I'm using approximately 18 inches of 20 to 30 pound um, steel leader. And again, I'm using that 20 to 30 pound range. The one thing I will caution the listeners with on these new leaders, and particularly the lighter weight ones 
is that after every fish, you'd need to check that leader because if they nick that sheath, they will eventually go through the steel as well. And I've had a couple fish go right through the steel leaders uh, because they are so fine and thin diameter, they do have a breaking point. And um, I, I learned the lesson the hard way last year in Alaska, losing probably what was my biggest fish ever mm. uh, on a break-off on steel leader. Are, are there titanium leaders available that uh, that are tieable? Well, tieable is a um, y- yes and no. Um, <laughs> it's kind of a double-edged uh, question there. There, there's some that are um, they're using very thin uh, strands and doing a weave. If you can find those, yes, they can be tieable. Um, I don't find them as easy to work with because um, they don't want to bend or kink. So for that uh, simple standpoint, they're a little bit harder to tie knots into. And then I know some guys that are using single-strand titanium, and they're just using the swivel and the clips on the ends, which I just don't like. I think it kind of, you know, takes away from the action of the the fly and and, uh, just makes everything more rigid. I don't want snaps and swivels and things like that on my fly set up for personal reasons but it, it, they they work and they're functional mm-hmm. so but as far as the knots i'm using from my mono to steel because i like to tie all my own leaders is i'm using a an albright knot from the mono to this to the steel and then like i said just a jam knot or an arbor knot if you will um uh, for the steel to the fly and then just tying a perfection loop in the other end of the mono and doing a loop-to-loop connection with the fly line so the if, when you change off the leader, it's not a big uh, big problem. It's not a time-consuming process as a result. No, and uh, to be honest with you, Don, if you, if you take some time and practice the Albright knot at home, uh, basically what I do is once I my leader, and like I said, I start with about 18 inches, so I can cut back two or three times on the steel itself before I need to tie in a new chunk of steel. And I basically will just cut the steel off and tie in another chunk of steel. And... Uh, like I said, if they'll practice the Albright knot, it's not that difficult of a knot to tie, and they can do it right there on the water, and it'd take them about 15 seconds to, to re-rig a new steel leader and be back fishing. But it sure beats the alternative if you don't take the time to check them out and, yep. and you turn around and lose a 30, 35-pound fish. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've had uh, uh, quite a few questions about flies and which fly to use and under what circumstance and that sort of thing. I, I guess my question to you is, is that something we want to talk about now or do you want to talk a little bit about uh, the behavior of the fish and the movement and then, therefore, the impact on the presentations and then talk about flies? What, what suits you? We uh, we can do it either way. Um, it might be easier to talk about the movement of the fish okay. um, we, throughout their, their season. And I, okay. I would say, parenthetically, having read your book, that uh, I think this is really where the main meat of your book is. And, and if anybody's a, a serious pursuer of the northern pike, uh, if they don't have your book, they're they're really coming from behind the eight ball because there is so much information here that explains how... 90% of the fish are in 10% of the water, and that correlates pretty well with that 10% of the fishermen who are catching 90% of the fish. Um, why don't you go ahead and, and uh, outline your, your theories on that? Well, if we, if we break it in, down into simple terms, uh, once the ice starts to come off the main lakes, or in, in some cases before the ice even leaves the main lake, the pike will begin their first migration out of out of deeper water. And again, they usually winter in about 
anywhere from 10 to 20 feet of water uh, along the first and secondary uh, uh, weed beds and drop-offs um, that were there from the previous summer. And once that ice starts to melt, uh, these fish will, again, they'll, they'll start to stage along the first drop-off. Typically, we'll find them in about 5 to 8 feet of water. And um, once the water temperatures start to warm up, and what, what was what was interesting is when we when I did all the research on on pike and spawning temperatures and stuff like that, so much it depends on the areas that you're at because we found uh, spawning temperatures that ranged anywhere from the the high 30s up to the low 50s, mm. which is a wide swing. Yeah. So um, you've got to kind of uh, Temperatures are just, a, they're a guideline, and people have to use them relative to the terms in the areas that they're fishing. And uh, But typically, um, as in, in where you find most of your pikes, uh, these lakes usually freeze over. So when the ice comes off, these fish are either in pre-spawn or they've already gone into their spawn. And in some cases, some of these um, more northern lakes that we get up to in, in Canada, by the time we get back into these bays, these fish have already spawned and they're back and to post-spawn. But they spawn typically in the back ends of these bays. If there's a small feeder creek coming in, it's a plus. But they're, they're seeking out those dark, mucky bottoms we all hate to get out and wait around in because you just it's kind of like the suck zone. It, it mm-hmm. just sucks you down in them, and it takes forever for you to dig yourself back out. Uh, but these are areas that warm up quickest, and they draw the fish back into them. Does spawning behavior differ uh, in lakes versus rivers? No. Okay. Um, uh, like here in Colorado, we have the Yampa River. When the river's high, uh, it coincides with the ice coming off and all the other lakes and the snow melting. And typically what happens on the rivers is you'll get either sloughs or channels or small interconnecting lakes. If you have interconnecting lakes and sloughs, uh, a lot of times they'll seek out the back ends of those. If not... Um, it's simply uh, high water areas, uh, areas where the uh, uh, river will back up onto the bank and flood into to, to fields and, and whatnot. Those fish will actually move into those areas and spawn. They, they like to spawn over vegetation. It can be aquatic or terrestrial. But uh, they, they're, they're looking for basically the same type of areas. You just need to, uh, to find them and locate them on a river system. How about uh, the post-spawn and then working on into the summer? What, sure. What's the, the area that you're looking for? Again, with the post-spawn, these fish usually don't go real far after the spawn. The big females tend to disappear. It's like all of a sudden they're gone, and you wonder where they're at, but magically they reappear. Here in Colorado, our best pike fishing usually runs, uh, shallow water pike fishing, usually runs from mid-May till the end of June. Once you start to move into the first part of July, they start to pull back out into deeper water. But again, I'm usually looking at water temperatures between 55 and 65 degrees, um, dark bottom bays, uh, vegetation, old creek channels, things like that that they can use. One thing about pike is they, they like deep water access nearby. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and everybody, when they think about pike, they think of this big top-end predator, and, and they are that, but they're also an ambush-type fish. They like to hunt from cover. So um, when you see them laying out in the open a lot of times uh, during the the, uh, the post-spawn, they're sitting there simply sunning. They're, they're absorbing the, the heat and trying to get their body temperature up, which helps speed up their metabolism and just makes them function that more. 
uh, better as a fish and a top end predator. As, as but, the water warms up, uh, what's the temperature that, that uh, then becomes contraproductive where they, they begin to seek the, uh, the deeper, cooler water? Well, again, here in Colorado, the water temperature, once it starts to hit that the high 60s, 68, 69, and again, I don't pinpoint temperatures. It's just kind of a guide because there's so many things that affect where fish locate, but that's one thing that fishermen can easily relate to. So it gives them a starting point. But typically by the time the water temperatures in the shallows start to reach the high 60s, the big fish are pulling back out into deeper water. And another thing to make sure that people understand is this movement in and out of these shallows is, is a daily movement. It, uh, they don't move into the shallows and stay there. Uh, during the nighttime periods, uh, during the post-spawn, these fish will pull back out to deeper water. The next morning as the sun comes up, starts to hit the water and warm the surface temperature up, they slowly start to filter back into these bays. So as such, our best fishing is typically from about 11 o'clock on, and we'll fish up to, you know, 6, 6.30, 7 o'clock at night, and then we'll call it good. So I kind of like those hours, so I don't have to get up early and go chase them around. <laughs> yeah. so now, but, from your, your book, it, it almost sounded like the smaller pike tend to make the moves a little quicker, uh, maybe a little earlier in the day than the, than the older, bigger ones. Well, it, again, it's it's all size relative. If you, a smaller fish is uh, warms up, uh, it can absorb the the, the sun and the the water temperature uh, much more quickly. Mm-hmm. So it takes a bigger fish a longer period of time to get its body temperature up to where they're they're active and they're actively feeding, and their metabolism and everything's working the way it should. And so it just takes them longer to kind of get going as opposed to small ones. And you, you go to some of these lakes in Canada and you get out there first thing in the morning and you go out there and you start fishing and you're catching lots and lots of small fish. But as the day progresses, all of a sudden you see the size start to shift and bigger and bigger fish show up. The small ones disappear because if they don't, <laughs> they're, they're the next meal. Yeah. Uh, but you'll see the size kind of shift as the water temperatures warm, and uh, basically these big pike, when 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 conditions are prime, they they pick the areas they want to be in, and the the smaller fish go away. Sure. <laughs> but by the same token, I would also caution if you get into a bay and you're doing and catching nothing but small fish, and you know everything's optimum, the water temperature's good, the forage is there, the cover's there, then you know uh, you probably need to go search out another bay to try and locate bigger fish. That reminds me of a question that I saw uh, that came in uh, before the show, uh, and that relates to, uh, do you think uh, you can study a body of water and guess at what kind or what size of pike it might hold, what the potential would be on a given body of water? For the most part, I would say yes, um, because... um Certain certain bodies of water are more prone to um, to produce more bait, uh, better cover. Um, they uh, lakes that offer more of what they're looking for are obviously going to produce uh, a better fishery, and also ultimately we would we would think would produce bigger fish. The downfall to that is is if it's if it's so plentiful that you could uh, and the and the pike do extremely well, they could. Uh, and if the body of water is small enough, they could overpopulate a lake, and then you would never get the ultimate size uh, from these fish. So what you're kind of looking for is a balance. 
as far as deep water, shallow water, rocks, mud, cover, and forage, and then obviously also water temperatures to to find that quote unquote trophy type lake. And uh, I again one of the questions I, I believe was uh, related to uh, uh, a gentleman who had asked about catching fish up to a certain size but never catching anything bigger. Yes. Yes. And in a situation like that, without knowing the lake that uh, he was talking about or knowing the specifics of it, my only guess, and, and again, it's entirely a guess, is that uh, that, that lake could be uh, overpopulated because we have the same scenarios here in Colorado. We had a few lakes that, that were doing extremely well, producing lots and lots of big fish. But as the population continued to grow, well, guess what fell off is the forage base fell off. And the next thing you know, you've got nothing but 18 to 24-inch pike competing with one another. And, yes, there's an occasional big fish thrown in. But as far as the average top in size, it went down by a good 15 to 18 inches. Hmm. So there's a lot of variables that play in it, I guess, is what I'm trying to tell you. Sure. Uh, in your book, you talk about some of the, the life zones in, uh, I guess, if you will, in the uh, in lakes in particular, mm-hmm. um, and that's going to influence the, the the forage bait fish as much as the uh, as the the predators too, I suppose. Sure, and, and what we really talk about, I think, and try and point out is the littoral zone, which is where all the uh, where the sunlight's able to actually penetrate to the bottom, and that's where you get your weed growth. That's where um, your your insects. That's just where life is happening within a given body of water, and everything's in there. So if you've got if you got weeds that can that can um, uh, produce uh, insects and and, and um, the right habitat for the insects, then obviously it's going to draw on bait fish that feed upon the insects, which in turn will will draw in predator type fish, the top end fish such as pike. To feed upon them, and um, that, that's kind of what we were trying to talk about is just point out these different areas within the lake. There's certain areas that obviously um, probably aren't going to hold a lot of fish. Uh, pike are not typically known as open water fish, so um, the open water areas, such as you know, like we're talking about with the limnetic zone, um, those those areas aren't prone to hold fish like pike because they relate to structure. They relate to cover, and they usually have their food fairly close by where a fish such as a striper or a wiper would be what we consider an open water feeder. How high up uh, do you find pike in, in the mountain lakes in Colorado? You know, you usually think of those lakes as being fairly sparse with vegetation, and, and uh, uh, what's, the, what's the deal there? Actually, a lot of those lakes are very rich because they're man-made. If they're very deep and and bowled out in the sense that there's not much drop or there's a, a real sharp drop-offs in the shorelines, so it goes from one foot of water right into 20, 30 feet of water, those those lakes aren't going to produce a lot of wheat growth, and therefore they're not going to be very good fisheries typically for fish that um, – Need the shallow waters. Uh, lakes like that would probably be better off um, and, and better fisheries for fish such as lake trout, uh, where they spend a great deal of their time in deep water. But here in Colorado, um, you got spinning 11 mile that are above 8,000 feet. You got uh, Taylor, which is even higher. It's pushing 9,000 feet or might be just above it. 
but what those areas lakes have is they have shallow flats where we can get some wheat growth and, and um spinny mountain reservoir for example gets a phenomenal wheat growth mm-hmm. and um up until about four years ago, five years ago, when we started having the drought situations, which killed off a lot of the weed beds, um, some of the weed beds out there were just uh, amazing. They were the length of football fields. Let's take just a real quick break here, uh, and then when we come back, we'll uh, we'll get into uh, talking about uh, specific flies and presentations and that kind of thing. Uh, when we return, we'll be talking more with Barry Reynolds about pike on the fly, so don't go away. Now, a brief word from our sponsor. Charlie's Flybox brings you this segment of our show. Charlie's Flybox, located in rustic old town Arvada, Colorado, features fine gear for the fly fisher and fly tire. Their selection of flies, many tied in-house, is particularly impressive. Their website is a go-to destination for fly tires, and check out their fly tying demo schedule. Go to charliesflyboxinc.com, that's charliesflyboxinc.com, all one word, or you can call 303-403-8880. That's 303-403-8880. They're also on the askaboutflyfishing.com website under Shops and Guides in Colorado. Okay, Barry, we've given them an idea about the kind of uh, habitat to look look for them at different times of the year. Uh, what are you throwing at these big, big ugly <laughs> characters, and, and how are you doing it? Anything they want. No. <laughs> um, before we get too deep in that, I'd like to step back just for sure. a second and touch yeah. upon uh, one of my favorite times of year to fish for these big pike is during the fall season. Yep. We've, uh, it's always been um, a big deal. The post-pawn has always been the, the really uh, much heralded time of year to go out and chase pike around, and, and rightfully so because you've got big numbers of fish concentrated in relatively small areas. And um, it's also the prime time to go out and be able to sight fish for these fish. The difference between the post-spawn and the fall period, though, is that the fish will put on about 30% body weight between those periods. Uh, as they move into the fall months, they're starting to fatten up to carry them through the winter time, and then they're also uh, trying to get ready for uh, the next spring spawn. Uh, so these fish pack on the weight during that fall, that last fall fe- uh, feeding frenzy, and I am now almost exclusively focusing my efforts during the fall because we have so many people chasing around in the springtime here mm. that uh, I've just kind of said, you know what, they can have them in the spring. I'm going to go chase them in the fall now <laughs> because we're getting such big fish. Now the numbers go way down. But the, but the size goes way up. Uh, I've caught my personal best of, of Colorado pike uh, during the fall season, and that fish was a little over 29 pounds, mm. which is a big pike anywhere, but particularly in a trout state. Yeah. And it was caught on a fly, and it was caught um, in late September. Um, but uh, what happens during the fall is these fish will, again, move somewhat towards the shallows. And when we talk about shallows, again, it's a relative term. Shallows in the fall, to me, could be saddle areas between islands. They could be rock reefs, um, um, boulder fields that come up out of deeper water. Things like that will hold big, big pike during the fall season. But uh, the, the, the other thing that's important to note is that they're, they're extremely scattered. You don't find concentrations of fish on a particular area. Hmm. You might pick up one or two fish 
uh, in one area, and if it's it's a really good spot, you might find three or four there. But the fish are scattered, so yeah, the key is to cover a lot of water at that that time of year and cover it more than once. Okay. But for people willing to do it and put in the effort, they could catch the fish of a lifetime. Wow. Well, sure. So, just kind of like I said, wanted to touch upon that fall period because sure. it, it always seems to get forgotten about. And like I said, the last few years, I've I've just really zeroed in and focused on it. So. But uh, back to your question about flies, um, boy, uh, they run the gauntlet from small uh, size two deceivers up to eight and nine inch long clip deer hair divers um, and uh, everything in between. What I have noticed is is this is that bigger fish more times than not tend to favor a bigger meal. So a lot of the flies I'm throwing are eight or nine inches long. But as far as particular patterns go, we could go on forever. Um, uh, clip deer hair divers, Dahlberg divers, rabbit strip divers um, fish extremely well. And the versatility of a diver is you can fish it spring, summer, or fall. You can fish it on a floating line. You can fish it on a sink tip line and even a full sinking line and fish it uh, through a, um, a vertical column of water, which is a different presentation than most people think about from fly fishing perspective, but it absolutely deadly on big pike and, and big tiger muskie because um, we can fish it on a short leader count the fly line down to depth and then drive that diver down and pause and allow it to float back up um, and you can get a two three four foot swing on that fly uh, straight up and down mm-hmm. and, and when fish are holding tight to cover uh, I've not found a better way to, than to get those big fish off that tight cover and they'll fall it right back up and it's pretty amazing to be standing there and fishing out of a boat and observe a, a dark, ominous shadow that's four feet long falling your fly back towards the surface. It's pretty, <laughs> it can be pretty unnerving. Sure. But uh, we also throw a variety of bait fish patterns, uh, uh, bunny flies, obviously. We fish a lot of those. Uh, we've done some um, redesign work on that fly and tried to lighten it up a little bit and uh, you'll see a new version of that coming out this next year and I think people will be pretty happy with that because we've we've uh, cured the fouling problem, we've taken and reduced some of the weight by replacing the rabbit strip collar with a big webby slop and hackle collar and we, I have a particular way in which I tie that that uh, protects the vein so you don't have to worry about a the pike's teeth pop in the vein of the the hackle and the feather coming loose on you. So that's a new pattern coming out. And then, uh, again, just a variety of of baitfish patterns. Uh, So many of the flies that we use for pike come from saltwater baitfish patterns. There's another one called a skokes uh, mushmouth. They tie it in a variety of different sizes and colors, and it uh, is perfectly um, sized and shaped for baitfish and... and, um, uh, we've had a tremendous amount of success with those the last few years. When you're thinking in terms of surface flies, what uh, what do you like to go with? Um, again, there's two basic patterns that I'm throwing. I'm either throwing a Dahlberg diver, and I like the one with the rabbit strip tail as opposed to the the long um, fiber that they're they're using on the mega divers. So I like to fish the rabbit strip divers, and then I also fish a pattern by Umqua. It's just called the Umqua Pike Fly, which is, again, just a big clip deer hair uh, diving head and uh, some long uh, saddles on the side, and then there's some Icelandic sheep down the middle. And, again, it's about an 8- or 9-inch long fly. 
uh, tied on a three-odd hook. And those are my primary topwater flies. And again, I'll fish those in conjunction with a floating line up in shallow water. Use uh, things like poppers and mice and that kind of stuff at all? Um, I do a little bit, but again, I I want to throw a, a bigger sized fly, so I'm fishing bigger patterns. Uh, there used to be a, a, a big clip deer hair uh, popper called um, a horse popper of all things, and um, we did very well with those uh, for years. But I can't find them anymore, and I'm getting to the point where I don't want to sit and clip deer hair all night long either. So <laughs> I'm getting lazy. And then for our subsurface work, I'm typically throwing bunnies, that skulks, uh, mushmouth, another fly called uh, uh, Paige's uh, big-eyed bait fish. Mm-hmm. And then when the fish are out in deeper water and they're holding tighter to the bottom and not willing to come up through the column of water to feed, um, I'm fishing flashtail whish- uh, whistlers. Um, and then uh, clouds are half and halves or Popovic's jiggies, uh, flies that are very heavily weighted, mm-hmm. which, again, aren't a whole lot of fun to cast. But if I got fish holding in deep water and, and uh, this is my only option, then you know what? I'm going to go down and get them. You, and then uh, I think that the color scheme is real important as well. Oh. And uh, depending on the water clarity, um, we typically... I always say we. I don't know why. It's like I go fishing by myself half the time. Uh, I talk to myself a lot too. Can you tell? <laughs> Fishermen are a strange breed, aren't we? Uh, yeah. um, but in clear water situations, I like to fish black, white, um, and then as I get into dirtier stained water, then I'm going to start fishing red and yellows, red and whites, uh, black and yellow combinations, black and chartreuse. Uh, high visibility two-tone colors I will fish in in, um, in dirty water and the, 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 the amount of flash I use uh, varies on the water clarity as well the clearer the water the less the flash and obviously it's hard for people to make that change midstream so I always say tie in more than you think is enough mm-hmm. and then when you're out on the water if you're you know fishing a flat calm day and the water's fairly clear then go ahead and cut some of that flash out if not all of it now when you first encounter a body water let's say you're a rookie at a a new lake or a new river whatever it is uh, you're probably going to have to do some prospecting do you start at the top and work down Uh, do you start at the bottom and work up what's your (laughs) strategy okay again we can jump back it's a lot of it's going to depend on the time of the year Okay, let's, um, if, if it's springtime and it's, it's, um, the afternoon, then I'm gonna fish, um, I always typically start with streamers. I'll, I'll just put it that way. And I'll fish them, um, 18 to 24 inches below the surface. And I'll probe, uh, anywhere from one foot of water out to about six foot of water with that pattern. And that's the best probing fly that, that I've had my best success with, and that's what I use to find out what's going on and then kind of see how the fish react from there and and then make changes accordingly. But it's it's better if they start, to me, with a big to mid-sized bait fish pattern and, and, and start there. And are you using a floating line or a sink tip? Again, in, in one to six foot of water, I may start with a floating line. Okay. And if, you know, if I don't find the fish in, in, in that shallow water and I've got to move out and fish deeper water, 
at that point, uh, probably going to make a few more casts of the floating line and then uh, kick it over to a sink tip line and then start probing a little bit deeper. And sometimes that's, that's, that's all it takes is, is just fishing the fly, you know, another three or four feet in, in water depth, and it's like throwing a light switch. Uh, we had a, a situation up on the Anoka River in Canada where the fish had pulled back off these shallow points, and they were sitting in about nine feet of water, but over nine feet of water, but they're sitting right on the edge of that drop in about five or six feet of water. And by simply going to a big flash tail whistler and a, and a seven foot sink tip, uh, our, our catch rate went from, you know, a couple fish here and there to fish every other cast. Mm. So, uh, like I said, the best thing to do is be prepared to cover the water from top to bottom. And, but, uh, to answer your question again, start with a streamer and, uh, a floating line. Okay. Now people have, uh, have been, uh, inquiring about how you prospect those pockets of water that are surrounded by heavy growth of weeds and that that sort of thing. And I know in your book you address that pretty specifically. Right. Typically with when I got heavy vegetation, I like to start from the outside. So when I say that, I want to fish the outskirts of those those that weed bed first. And I'll um there's two ways I can do that and usually I'll start again with a streamer. And I'll cast up around the edges and, and, and um, I'll fish it at varying depths and, and try it that way. And and then I also like to throw the big clip dare hair divers up into the uh, along the uh, weed bed edges as well and then up into the pockets itself. But before I fish those pockets that you're referring to, I always cover the outside perimeter before I go inside. Because if you don't, a lot of times these big fish are holding off on these outside edges and you're going to blow them out of there before you even get a chance to throw a fly at them. And more times than not, it's smaller fish that are tucked way back up in there and the bigger ones are out cruising the edges or holding off the edges. Do you typically use a weedless fly or is that uh, something that you just select uh, for the uh, given circumstance? Usually for the given circumstance, um, most times... I don't fish a wee guard. Um, no, the few times that I will is in the, the situation that you just discussed where we need to throw back up into that type of cover. Um, I just think I get a better hookup rate with flies that are non-weedless. And for the most part, it's rare that I fish deep in the weeds, so I'm usually fishing around the outside edges and stuff, and I don't find it overly necessary to, to have a wee guard. So. I'm one that uh, will not fish very many flies with a weed guard on them. Or is there a specific type of weed guard that you think is preferable to increase your hookup rate? <laughs> well, the one thing you got to be careful of is if you're using mono, is that you don't use too heavy a mono. Uh, I had some guys um, join me on a trip, and they tied a bunch of flies, and they wanted to tie them weedless. And, uh, they were just tying a simple loop off the bend and back through the eye, but they were using about 40-pound mono, and um, and it was hard mono at that, and it was tied in such a way that um, they were missing darn near every fish that that was eating the fly because mm-hmm. it just there was no give to it. Um, the uh, piano wire uh, type uh, spring type uh, steel weed guards work very very well. And uh, they're easy to flex back in the shape after they've been hit on. Um, but if you are going to use mono again, I just urge that they um, they they pay 
close attention to, to the pound that they're using, and I usually would suggest somewhere in that 20 to 22 pound range for a mono loop, and um, or uh, like an 18 gauge uh, piano wire. Now, when you've got to uh, to get deep, um, can you tell us uh, a good technique for hauling a, a sinking line and a heavy fly and a steel leader out of the water and getting it back down to where the fish are effectively and uh, one uh, question that came in, I noticed, uh, addressed the question about whether there might be a place for shooting hits uh, uh, in this kind of uh, casting. Yeah, make sure your buddy that's fishing in the boat with you isn't casting in the same direction. <laughs> I I was fishing with a good buddy of mine. I took his hat off his head and threw it out about 40 feet. So I know exactly what they're talking about. And that's, again, another good point for why we want to pinch the barbs down. Um, Because most of these flies are big and and pretty heavy, particularly when they start to soak up some water. If you're fishing out of a boat and you're fishing up in the front end of the boat, uh, the, the best thing I can do is suggest a circle cast, which is where you come back. Uh, sidearm, and then before you, and as you come forward on the forward stroke, come straight over the top. Um, that that it, that will help keep that fly away from you, where you're not pulling it back straight towards yourself. You're pulling it out to the side. And when you come forward, uh, most of us, um, when we come forward, have a little bit uh, truer track. So again, like I said, if you can imagine a, a half circle, and I kind of bring it out to the side and bring it back, and then when I come on the forward stroke, I'll come straight over the top. Uh, is the safest way I've found. Trust me, I'm I'm not. As long as I've been fly fishing, I'm still not comfortable throwing heavily weighted flies um, on a weighted line in, in those types. Um, you know, a friend of mine played around with them, and to me, they really don't. I don't see the need for them in pike fishing because. Short cast, we're not having to throw 100 feet to these fish. And if they are, people are just trying to be heroes. Most of the time our casts are 20, 30, maybe 40 feet in length. So, um, And then again, on the water depth, we're, we're typically fishing about 18 foot of water or less, and, and 18 foot is pushing it. And I can do that with a full sinking line, and I don't need um, a shooting head system to do that. And the primary function on shooting heads is for distance and also to be able to send the, the line down to, you know, uh, below the 20-foot mark. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of your uh, sink, full sinking lines will, will take you down deep enough uh, to where you need to do it. So uh, unless you're trying to make, you know, monster casts, I don't really see the need for it. And as such, I don't use them. Sure. Let me pin you down. I've had several <laughs> folks who've, uh, who've uh, submitted variations on this theme. You can take three flies with you, bike fishing. What are they going to be? <laughs> <laughs> Only three, huh? Yeah. Um, I would take a flashtail whistler. I would take a bunny fly, and I would take a Dahlberg diver. Any uh, explanation to go with that? Sure. Um, the flashtail whistler is going to allow me to fish deep water if necessary. Okay, and um, the bunny fly is going to allow me to fish just subsurface in that 12 to 18 inch range just below the surface, and that Dahlberg diver is going to allow me to fish the surface and from the surface down a couple feet. 
So basically, I picked out three flies that are going to allow me to cover the water where the pike should be on there, and pretty much throughout the entire season, I should be able to get to fish with with one of those three flies. Okay. Well, let's take just a real quick break. When we return, Barry Reynolds will be fielding your live questions about fishing for pike, uh, either by phone or through the internet. First, let's have a brief word from our sponsor. This portion of our show is brought to you by a new affiliate, Granite Springs Lodge. Granite Springs, conveniently located near Interstate 90 in eastern South Dakota, offers guided pheasant hunting as well as fly fishing. They have several packages available, including corporate memberships, and their hunting season extends from September through March. Fly fishing for trout and stalking the wily ringneck, truly a cast and blast to remember. Reach them at 605-940-9613 for their website, granitespringssd.com. At 605-940-9613 and granitespringssd.com. Tell them you heard it on Internet Radio. Okay, Barry, uh, now's the time uh, in our show when uh, we get to entertain, the, or when you get to entertain, the live question and answers uh, uh, session. And um, I'm going to have to explain just a little bit to folks in case we have newcomers, but uh, uh, they'll be calling in on the teleconference call or submitting uh, new questions via the Internet. And if you're listening uh, via the Internet, and would like to ask Barry a question, just go to the homepage, uh, askaboutflyfishing.com, and click on the link below the description of, of Barry that says, click here to ask Barry Reynolds your most important question. And please remember to list your first name and where you're from so we get some input there. Just fill in the question and send it in, and we'll get, it, we'll get to it on the, in the order that it's uh, received. If you want to call in by phone to ask Barry a question, you can dial 212-990-8000. And the PIN number is 6913-POUND. If you're on the phone already, hang on, and we'll open the lines in just a second. Before we open our phone lines uh, for questions, we need everybody who's on the telephone to mute their phones so that we don't have any background noise. And in order to mute your phone, we'll have you press star 6. So now if everyone who's on the telephone can press star 6 right now, and then once it comes time for you to ask a question, you can press star six, which will unmute. You can answer the, ask the question, and then after your question, you can go back to star six so you're muted. Uh, look, Barry, let's uh, check first and see if we have any uh, callers uh, in on the telephone. Hello, do we have anybody on the telephone with a question for Barry? Okay, we'll go back to the uh, Internet then to start. And uh, one question I have here, Barry, uh, relates, uh, this is from Chris up in Bozeman. He's curious about, um, he, he's had a shutout thrown at him by the Bow River up in Canada uh, going for pike, and uh, he wonders uh, what your feeling is about using drift boats, uh, chasing pike in rivers, and uh, how you do it. And the type of areas we're looking at. Mm -hmm. um, yes, I have fished out of uh, drift boats. We've uh, floated the Yampa River here in Colorado uh, out of drift boats, and, and we've been very successful doing it. Pike have a, a very attuned lateral line system, so you need to keep uh, boat noise down um, to a minimum and, and not try and spook them off 
before you get over them or get a chance to get a cast off to them. As far as locating pike in rivers, uh, you need to keep in mind that pike are going to try and avoid the current. They, they're not uh, current fighters. They don't like to swim the current, and they will avoid it at all costs. Um, as such, you need to look for areas of deadfall and slack water that these fish will hold up in. And my favorite time to fish river systems is in the fall when they're typically at their lowest. Uh, it concentrates the fish a little bit and uh, makes them a little bit easier to find. Uh, the, the disadvantage to fishing a river system, I think, is that they have access to travel around quite a bit, and they do so. Uh, some of the research that we got back on uh, the pike up on the Anoko is just amazing. These fish were moving eight and nine miles in a couple of days. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to cover a lot of water for them. But, um, again, a boat's a great way to fish for them because it allows you to cover a lot of water. And, um, you know, what I would say and suggest is bypass uh, the quicker, swifter-moving water and focus on slow pocket water and any areas where you've got deadfall or deep pools um, and backwater areas like sloughs and channels uh, where these fish will pile up into well, here's, a, here's an, an interesting question from an interesting source. Uh, this question comes from Lieutenant Colonel Bill Jones in Baghdad. Uh, I happen to know that he's the guru of the Baghdad School of Fly Fishing. And uh, actually, he's from Montana and uh, does not have uh, experience with pike fishing. He wonders, are, are pike uh, light-shy fish? Is that... Are, do you... Uh, do light conditions affect them uh, dramatically? And he's also uh, unfamiliar with the concept of shock tippets and wonders how you use them. Okay. Um, I've, I've visited his website and saw some of the fish that they're yeah. catching over there, and I'm, I'm somewhat jealous. I can't say I'm totally jealous, but I'm somewhat jealous because I'm pretty impressed with uh, some of the fish they're catching over there, and I think that's pretty intriguing in its yeah. own right. As far as light sensitivity goes, um, uh, in clear water situations, uh, I'm, they're not light sensitive, but they do, again, they're an ambushing type fish that like to hunt from cover. And cover can come in so many different forms. When we think about cover, we think about um, uh, the shadowed areas underneath docks or uh, timber or weed beds and things like that. But we forget about things like wind. Uh, that creates a chop on the water, um, uh, muddied water, uh, stained water. So, um Again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pin it, pinpoint it totally on bright light because we do very, very well on bright, sunny days. Um, but I, I would say that, that they do like to hunt from cover, um, be it um, dirty, stained water or from weed beds mm-hmm. and those type of areas. Now, and do you ever use uh, fluorocarbon tippets? I have played around with the fluorocarbons and, and been fairly happy with them. Uh, but as far as my bite tippet goes, again, I am 100% still now. Here's a question that comes from the southeastern United States, uh, and I'm hoping that we'll get some questions from Europe or, or even Asia. Uh, I know there are pike in uh, northern climes in, uh, in Europe in particular that uh, a lot of folks chase after and would like to hear from them. But uh, they're they're wondering how far south they can expect to find uh, pike, and then of course muskies, which have been uh, planted uh, uh, further south. But uh, just wondering a little bit about some of your techniques in in those waters, if they differ in any way. 
Well, again, um, we have to take seasonal movements and water temperatures into consideration. Um, again, those waters typically won't get to some of the temperatures that we talk about and describe in the book or you'll hear other people talk about because most times when you're, you're discussing these things, you're, you're talking about the, the, uh, their upper reaches where they're, 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 um, naturally found. Mm-hmm. Uh, and waters that they're stocked in, you know, uh, muskies you can find as far south as Kentucky, uh, Cave of the Run is, is one of the, the better muskie fisheries, uh, in the country and it year in and year out continues to push big fish out. And I know some of their big fish come during the winter months. Um, on the other side of the scale with Northern Pike, um, uh, you've got, uh, down into New Mexico and Arizona, we've got uh, some pretty good pike water. And the, the, the trade-off with, with the pike in these southern climes is this, is that they're very quick growing. So um, they, they will average anywhere upwards of 6 to 12 inches a year in growth. Uh, where on these more northerly bodies of water, uh, they're only averaging, you know, two, three, four inches of growth. And as, as a result, uh, it can be said that the, the quicker they grow, the shorter their lifespan is. So like here in Colorado, I'll give you again as an example, um, uh, a lot of research that's been done on the pike here has found that these pike, uh, their, their average uh, top end age was 12 years old. But, but yet we're producing 30 and 32, 33 pound fish. Um, but is that the uh, top ultimate top end size for northern? No, not even close. Uh, so the trade-off again is that uh, some of these southern waters do produce nice fish and they get big quickly, but they don't live very long. And the water temperature sometimes in the summer can get to the point where it's lethal to to big pike. Yeah. So they're more favorable to produce a lot of small to mid-sized fish. Here's a question. Are there pike in Mongolia or Siberia? Yes, there is. Uh, In both areas. In in Mongolia, they have a pike there, uh, which is called an Amur uh, pike, and um, it basically is a northern pike uh, that's dressed up in black dots. It's it's got a very clear coloration on the side, and it has... um, almost like leopard spots um, covering its entire body. Absolutely beautiful fish. And from the research that I've done and been able to look at, uh, um, locals there have claimed to catch fish in their fishing nets um, uh, upwards of 80 pounds. Mm. So they get very, very large there. And Russia also has some phenomenal pike fishing and big fish as well. And um, fishing techniques really don't change that much um, Again, with with any of these species. So, okay. let's uh, just go back and check on the phone line. Uh, just on the off chance, we've got somebody. I know typically most of our listeners are on the internet, but let's just check here. Anybody on the phone line that'd like to ask Barry a question? Okay, we'll go back to the internet. Uh, Barry, here's a question. I'm not sure uh, where Randy's from, but he wants to know your favorite Pike Lake in Minnesota, North Dakota, and Montana. In each state. In each state. Yeah. Well, in in um, North Dakota, uh, two two of the lakes that are probably fishing the best these days is Devil's Lake and Lake uh, Sakalia. And then in Montana, again, Fort Peck and Fort Dodge Lakes um, are, are probably the two top pike fisheries there. And boy, Minnesota is full of a lot of pike water. I, I, I really can't get real specific on, 
um, some of the uh, the premier pike uh, waters there, but Lake of the Woods, uh, Mille Lacs um, uh, are, are along there. Uh, Lake um, Winnebagosh, um, uh, the Upper Red Lake, all those areas hold you know some some good pike. Um, but there is so much pike water available there that um, yeah, I think uh, just about any of the uh, the, the mid to upper region lakes in Minnesota would have a chance of producing good fish. I've uh, fished Leech Lake on uh, numerous occasions, and while it's more of a musky lake, we did do fairly well on, on decent-sized uh, pike, up to about 15, 16 pounds. Well, and the uh, some of the uh, lakes that you mentioned in uh, Minnesota and North Dakota, or, I'm sorry, in uh, Montana and North Dakota are impoundments of the Missouri River. How far, how far up the Missouri can you expect to take pike? Oh, uh, all the way up through. Uh, again, anywhere, uh, and even in the Missouri River itself, obviously you're going to find fish that are getting out through, um, you know, the uh, the raceways and whatnot. Uh, but uh, through each one of those states, you'll find them all the way up into Canada. And like I said, uh, I have not fished... Um, um, Fort Dodge, but I've read so much about that lake the last few years, and I mean it is pumping out a lot of big fish, and it's probably one of the the, the uh, North America's top pike fisheries going right now. In reading your book and uh, seeing the kind of detail that you are able to reflect on, um, I'm guessing that you must keep a pretty detailed log when you're out fishing, uh, probably not just for circumstances like this, but uh, for your own edification and uh, in enhancing your success uh, while you're fishing them. Do, do you keep a log? Oh, absolutely. And what uh, what kind of entries do you make in it? What, what sort of <laughs> details are you looking for? And, and I log every fishing trip, not just you know, ones for pike. I just think there's so much important information that that we learn every time we go out. That if we don't write it down, we forget about it. But um, uh, time of day, weather conditions. Um, you know, obviously the time of year is one of the first things. So always time, date, uh, any any uh, weather conditions, water levels. Um, uh, even though uh, you know when these lakes are really drawn down. Um, on these man-made impoundments, it's a great time to go out and find structure that you didn't know existed, mm -hmm. and uh, and make uh, notes that way as well. Uh, one of my things to do is when the ice first comes off the lakes, is to go out and check them out. And again, I'll draw uh, maps and make uh, uh, notes on where these areas are uh, that are likely areas to hold fish, and I'll come back and fish them as the uh, you know the conditions. Um, get ripe for that type of fishing, uh, even if the water's come up, now I know where that structure is. Mm -hmm. And again, during low water years, it's a great way to do that. Um, other notes I'll keep is type of retrieves, um, presentations. Was I using a, um, you know, a, a neutral uh, weighted streamer with a sinking line, or was I using a heavily weighted fly with a sinking line, or... Um, um, Again, uh, a floating line with a weighted fly fishing it almost jig style. I, I'll make all those kinds of notes um, that I can fall back on and look and, and kind of. Again, after you do that for for a while, you can start to draw pictures and conclusions, obviously, about what's going on. But um, 
every time you think you got them figured out, you know, Mother Nature has a way of changing things up, and you find things change just a little bit. I'll make mental notes about how many people might have been out there fishing for them that day, hmm. um, you know, because that can change the way the fish behave and react. Uh, you get 10, 15 guys out walking across a, a big uh, shallow flat, uh, guess what? The pike aren't going to hang around very long, okay? And, I, and say that day I found them out, um, you know, another 100 feet past where everybody was, was focusing on, and they were holding in 6 to 8 feet of water instead of 2 to 4 feet of water. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the kind of notes I make uh, and, and keep track of, and it allows me to come back and... Uh, Again, compare notes from season to season and, um, again, formulate my own ideas. And, you know, one of the things I like to stress is that's what's so beautiful about fishing is it's an individual type thing. Uh, we base all our assumptions off what we see each time we go out there. And the last time I checked, nobody's been able to climb inside the, the brain of a fish and tell me exactly what he's, what he's thinking. Sure. And, uh, you know, it's all based, uh, assumption based off observation. It's, that's just, you know, the important part of keeping a log. It, it allows us to, to make those assumptions and, uh, and note those observations, so. Yeah, you don't have to, uh, go back and relive all the old mistakes. <laughs> oh, I still do that. <laughs> I'm human. Yeah. Here's a question about technique. Uh, uh, asks if uh, you typically strike a pike with a, a strip strike, and mm-hmm. are you using a double haul uh, for your casting technique? Yes. Okay. Is uh, the first question as far as a strip strike? Absolutely. That is uh, when I'm stripping the fly in, and I have a fish uh, attack the fly. The worst thing you can do, and it's kind of difficult with pike because they usually are so visual and and they they make such a ruckus when they take the fly, particularly near the surface. Um, If you react off what you're seeing and not what you're feeling, nine times out of ten you're just going to pull a fly out of their mouth or pull it away from them before they ever get a chance to get to it. So a strip strike will help you eliminate that because what you're waiting for is to feel the weight of the fish, and when you do it with that stripping hand as you come tight, and once I come tight, then I sweep the rod to the side and and and, and stick them. And um, like I said, that, that's by far the most successful way to hook not just pike but a lot of other fish, particularly yeah. when you're fishing big streamers and and, and uh, topwater stuff. Yeah, and it, from everything you hear, it sounds like uh, you're less likely to yank the uh, yank the fly clear out of the strike zone, and the fish may come back to it. Uh, uh, with a strip strike, whereas if you haul from the heels with a rod strike, it, it won't be the same result. Oh, absolutely, and that's a great point because uh, I was fishing again uh, and go back on the Anoka River where the water's usually fairly dirty, and if you yank it away from them, they may not find it again. And I had this fish where I had the line come tight, and I saw the tail kind of pop up behind the fly, and. Uh, I went to strike the fish and again uh, pulled it away from the fish, but only pulled it about six inches away and it swam up and grabbed it again. Mm-hmm. And you'll see that, like you said, on, a, on a happen on a fairly regular basis. So it, it doesn't pull too far away from them where they lose track of where it's at. And as far as the double haul, yes, that's about the only way to cast those big flies. And um, it just makes it so much easier, plus you need to be able to punch that fly through. Again, a lot of times we're fishing in areas where the wind's going to blow at some point, and we'll, it will aid you in, in pushing those flies out there. Um, 
even at 30 and 40 feet where that's not really that long of a cast, but a double haul is quite useful in turning those big flies over. Sure. Now here's a question that Jay has just sent in. I'm not sure where he's from, but it looks like he's in the eastern time zone. He wants to know, uh, basically, do you use a fast rod or a slower rod for, for this kind of work? And fast action. And he missed the, the point that you used usually a minimum of an 8 up to a 10-weight rod. Right. I'm typically using a 9-weight fast action rod, and to give everybody a, a, just a better idea, I typically am using a saltwater-style rod. So those are fairly stiff and extremely fast. Oh. And, again, it's just to be able to punch these big flies out there um, and not have to wait for half an hour as the rod unloads behind me with uh, six inches of soaking wet rabbit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, here's a question that uh, that came up actually on our last show when we were talking about spring creeks, but uh, particularly in a, in a strenuous endeavor such as uh, the style of fishing you're talking about with double hauls all day long and, big uh, heavy flies and uh, relatively heavy equipment how do you prepare your arm strength for uh, for putting up with a, a day of that I just ran across a thing in the internet that uh, a fellow up in uh, Missoula Montana uh, has established a uh, a clinic actually uh, to address uh, arm shoulder and elbow problems in uh, uh, fly fishers <laughs> He's a smart man. <laughs> How do I usually prepare for it? I go out and fish. <laughs> well, luckily, I get to fish year-round, so yeah. I get to travel enough, and, and I, I stay in, in shape. But for those that are only fishing, you know, a certain part of the year, um, you know, a lightweight and exercise is the best thing you can do. Um, I know the guy that went with me down to Guatemala for sailfish, he exercised for the better part of two months prior to us going down there. Mm -hmm. And uh, just stretching and, uh, again, lightweights. You don't want to lift anything heavy, but lightweights, um, just uh, some arm curls, um, um, uh, both uh, from the waist up and then um, some tricep curls uh, from behind the head. And uh, again, just lightweight enough to uh, to get your muscles, uh, use your muscles that you typically aren't using in a day-to-day -day situation one that you definitely are going to expose and use in, in fishing situations. Here's a question. Uh, a fellow is going to, fellow maybe, uh, is going to Lake Nipissing the end of August, and he wonders uh, what your recommendations would be uh, for that uh, circumstance, uh, uh, given what the... The certain or the conditions might usually be like at that time. Sure. Uh, typically, again, you're you're in that late summer period. Um, the fish are probably still going to be holding off the weed beds out in deeper water. So I'm going to look for these fish in the 10 to 20 foot range, and I'm going to try and find uh, cabbage beds and weed beds, milfoil, uh, and fish the inside and outside edges. But again, that time of year. I would be prepared to fish deeper water, uh, a seven-foot sink tip, and uh, all of, um, some big uh, flashtail whistlers, and uh, be prepared to to fish down to deeper fish. Okay. Uh, I think the other thing that's important is during the springtime we're fishing during the heat of the day because that's when the fish are most active because of water temperatures. As you move into the summer months, I'll shift and I'm fishing early mornings, late in the evenings and finding the fish more active during those periods. 
if you find cloudy, windy, overcast days, then the fishing can be fairly cons consistent throughout the entire day. Here's um, a kind of a backhanded compliment, maybe. Uh, <laughs> this, this is from TR, and uh, he tells us that uh, for the past eight years, he's been targeting pike exclusively in April, May, June, and September. Mm -hmm. He started, uh, I guess, a few years before that, but he and he got skunked most days. But he says now he's experiencing 20 fish days and occasional 20-plus pound fish, and that it would have taken him twice the number of years to be that successful had he not read your book. He <laughs> thanks you, and uh, then he implores you, please don't write any more books. We've got too many bait chuckers to compete with, never mind the number of fly guys after Pike now. <laughs> so at any rate, he says, thanks from someone who enjoys the sport as much as you. That's, uh, that's high praise, uh, at least. Yes, and I appreciate it very much, and I, I understand exactly where he's coming from. And I just, uh, to be honest with you, in the early years I struggled with uh, – sharing a lot of information and it got to the point where I thought you know there's so much more to fly fishing than just going out and throwing dry flies for trout or just nymph fishing for trout or just uh, you know a particular way of fishing or fishing for uh, just a single type of fish and, and I think everybody deserves the chance to go out and fish for other species because the more we species we chase and the more different ways we find to pursue them and, and challenge ourselves with them, the better and more complete anglers we're all going to become. And um, I had a lot of friends that were mad at me when I first started bringing some of this stuff out, yes. <laughs> and they're still mad at me. I, they don't talk to me anymore. So, Let me just uh, take one last cast uh, uh, on the phone line in case somebody's there. Uh, anybody on the phone for a question for Barry? Okay, I think we're we're accustomed to most of the questions coming via the internet. <laughs> well, I think we've uh, reached the the time that we're just about out of time, and uh, uh, when we return, we'll be selecting the lucky fly fisher who will win an autographed copy of Barry's uh, Mastering Pike on the Fly. So stay tuned, and we'll have a brief word from our sponsor. The Federation of Fly Fishers annual fly fishing show and conclave will be in. July 25th through 29th in Bozeman, Montana in the beautiful Gallatin River Valley. The Conclave is an outstanding educational event featuring over 100 programs, workshops, and demonstrations devoted to fly fishing. Plan to attend this marvelous event, and if you haven't, consider joining a fly fishing club near you. Join the Federation of Fly Fishers. Go to their website, fedflyfishers.org or go to askaboutflyfishing.com and click on the Federation logo on the home page. Okay, Barry, it's time to draw the winning name for your book. And uh, the way we do this, uh, basically we have a, a program that uh, will randomly select a name from our computer registration database. And uh, let me just refresh that list so we make sure that everybody... Uh, has been included. Looks like it's ready. Here we go. And the winner is Sean McDonald in California. Uh, Sean, you should be hearing from us uh, shortly. If uh, something happens that you don't, uh, be sure and uh, 
email us in uh, just on the off chance there's some kind of a, a glitch that comes up. But uh, you'll be receiving that uh, autographed copy of Barry's uh, Mastering Pike on the Fly. And uh, Barry, I, I, I've said it before, but I really feel that if people are serious about fly fishing for pike, uh, they have to have your book. I've, I've not seen 250 pages so jam-packed with information. Um, well, Barry, it's been terrific having you on the show. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to teach us more about uh, fly fishing for northern pike. I've sure learned a ton. I uh, hope you'll come back again soon and join us on another show. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. And uh, like I said, I just uh, hope and uh, pray that we can encourage everybody to get out there and experience fly fishing for all it is. Okay. Well, our next broadcast will be Wednesday, April 19th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. And our guest will be Bill Edrington, author of Fly Fishing the Arkansas. Bill will answer questions about fishing the caddis fly for trout. Timing's perfect for the Mother's Day hatch just around the corner. And we want to thank tonight's sponsors. Uh, please let them know you heard their ad on our show. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Don't forget to check out our website, askaboutflyfishing.com. Make sure you're signed up to receive our future announcements. Check out the directories on our site and take advantage of our links to the Federation of Fly Fishers and the Federation Forum. That's it. Good night, everybody. Thanks for joining us.